All right, so let me introduce tonight's speaker. Patrick K. O'Donnell is a best-selling, critically acclaimed military historian and expert on elite units, the author of 12 books, including The Unknowns and Washington's Immortals. He is the recipient of numerous national awards. O'Donnell served as a combat historian in a Marine rifle platoon during the Battle of Fallujah and is a professional speaker on America's conflicts, espionage, special operations, and counterinsurgency. He has provided historical consulting for the award-winning miniseries Band of Brothers and for documentaries produced by the BBC, the History Channel, and Discovery. He is a scholar and fellow at Mount Vernon's Fred W. Smith Library for the study of George Washington. So now I am going to turn it over to Patrick. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be with you tonight. Francis Tavern is one of my favorite places to visit New York City. Uh, museum is a tremendous and so is the tavern um, and I always visit every time I go so um, I encourage everybody to go visit the tavern and the museum when they go to New York um, but tonight is about my 12th book a best-selling book called The Indispensables it's on the Marblehead men from Massachusetts and the leaders of Marblehead Massachusetts and it's called The Indispensables because of what they did um, every book I've ever written is I always ask a basic question, who cares? And who cares is flashing across our screens right now with Afghanistan. Evacuating a, an army in front of an enemy force is one of the most difficult operations um, that a military can conduct as we're seeing. And in the summer of 1776, August 1776, actually a week from now, 245 years ago, the fate of our country was in the hands of an evacuation. And that evacuation, arguably one of the greatest in military history from in America's history, was conducted by, it fell on the shoulders of the men from Marblehead, which had to evacuate 9,200 or 9,500 men from Brooklyn under the prying eyes of the British Army, which were about to pounce on them. And um, going back a couple days, the Battle of Brooklyn unfolds and it's the largest battle of the American Revolution up until that point where the British land uh, navally with the largest force that ever hit North America to take out the um, rebellious colonies. And George Washington has the impossible task of defending New York City which is um, surrounded by water and can be hit by it on any, at any point by the Royal Navy. Um, but for political reasons, he's asked to defend the impossible and he does the best that he can. Uh, on August 27th, the Battle of Brooklyn unfolds and it's here that um, the two armies clash. And I, I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals where we have literally an American Thermopylae that saves a large portion of the Continental Army, where the Marylanders, the Maryland, uh, you know, 400 Marylanders basically charge um, into the British lines and created a gap in those lines and allow the army to escape. They charge multiple times, bayonet charge, and um, 256 Marylanders are never seen again. Uh, they're either killed there or they're captured. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a Pyrrhic victory 
or in, in the sense that it allows the army to escape, um, but many Marylanders sacrifice themselves. And it's, it's Washington finds himself suddenly in the situation of having to make a choice. Does he retreat from Long Island or Brooklyn or fight? And he calls a council of war and wisely uh, decides to retreat. And it's on the shoulders of the men that I write about from Marblehead, Massachusetts. And also there's a company from Beverly where they have to make that, they have to basically affect that evacuation, which is mission impossible. Um, that night is the night of August 29th, 30th. It's raining. The men of the Marblehead Regiment and some a company from Beverly are ordered to advance initially. But in reality, they're moving back towards the East River. And with less than two hours notice, they're told that all the boats that are there, a motley assortment of sailing craft, rowing craft, are gonna be used to move the army and it's gonna be them that does it. And uh, this is practically mission impossible. Nothing works that night. Uh, the tides don't work. The current in the river is very fast flowing and the boats literally aren't going anywhere. The, um, the commander that's trying to, that's, a, that's in charge of the overall commander in charge of the operation tries to find Washington to call off the, the operation. Washington can't be found that night. They're concerned about um, you know, their own soldiers potentially leaking information or even the loyalists that are nearby. Uh, so they're ordered, the army is ordered to advance, but in fact, they're advancing towards the river, towards the boats where these men are, are moving the army across. And they first move the artillery and the horses, and then they move the army slowly, but nothing is working. And uh, they can't find Washington. Interestingly enough, the uh, loyalist tries to alert the British of the evacuation. They send an enslaved uh, servant who makes his way to the British lines, uh, he runs across several Hessian soldiers who are German allies, and they can't understand this gentleman. So the intelligence isn't properly transmitted in time and the operation continues forward. Um, you know, through the skill of the Marblehead men, which they're quite unique, uh, they derive their living from the sea, uh, either by trading or by fishing, uh, the Grand Banks, and the Grand Banks are some of the most hostile uh, waters in the world. It takes um, really men of iron to be able to handle the sea and fish there. And uh, you know, over the course of years, many men are lost at sea every year by fishing. It's extremely perilous and dangerous. But in the process, these men have learned to work as a team. And uh, the regiment that the Marblehead Regiment is a diverse regiment in the sense that there are uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanics uh, within the group. It's also diverse economically, socioeconomically. There's rich and poor that are fighting side by side, but they work as a team and they, they develop that, that, uh, that, that team concept through um, from the sea and uh, the perils of the sea through fishing and then also through trading where split second decisions are made, you know, life and death decisions are made instantaneously and you have to work together. They do that tremendously well. Um, and their skills are able to bring 
the boats across the river. It's just not one time though, it's multiple times they have to go back and forth across a mile long East River. And if you're in New York, uh, this is the site of the Brooklyn Bridge is the location of, of the evacuation point. And uh, this is a, you know, relatively, it's one of the, the shorter points on the river, but it's still a mile long and it's still very treacherous at night. And then, oh, by the way, you also have one of the greatest navies in the world, the greatest navy of the world at the time, the British Navy, which is parked not far down the East River. But that night, the winds don't favor the Royal Navy and they're not able to sail up the East River and intercept the boats um, they, quite miraculously. Um, suddenly the wind does turn and um, the boats are able to make their way across um, and uh, drop off equipment and they keep going across. But there's never, um, there's really not, not enough time in this operation. Uh, they're really running against the clock and uh, daylight soon appears and the, the landing area, the, the embarkation area for the boats is a scene of mass chaos. And the commander in chief, uh, George Washington is there. He's one of the last men to leave. Uh, this is an example of Washington's leadership style. He's not the first in the boats. He's one of the last to leave. And he personally um, quells the chaos. And there's an incredible story of him literally lifting a large boulder over his head and saying that he'll sink the ship to hell or the boat to hell if there's not order restored. And order is restored and the men continue to go across thanks to the marble headers. Um, but here, uh, daylight comes and really a miraculous thing occurs. Uh, a fog sets in at exactly the right time that screens the movement of the boats from the prying eyes of the British as they're able to make um, arguably the, the greatest evacuation in American history, what I call the American Dunkirk, as they safely transport 9,500 Americans from Brooklyn and harm's way into Manhattan. And that's just, uh, that's just one little story within the Indispensables, which begins in 1769 on the, um, the rolling deck of a boat called the Pit Packet. And um, it moves through the early stages of the Revolutionary War where these men and women are at the very spear tip of the Revolutionary, the American Revolution and the Revolutionary War. Their actions through financing the revolution, through their ideas, through the fact that they are part of one of the greatest military regiments in American history, they change the course of history and, the, and change the course of the American Revolutionary War. Um, going forward from uh, the evacuation point, it's the Marbleheaders that are again involved in the British landing at Kipps Bay, where two weeks later after the, the disastrous debacle at the Battle of Britain where nearly all could have easily been lost, this is a situation where the British had overwhelming numbers and they were able to crush and surround half of the Continental Army and potentially even capture Washington himself. <clears throat> many, many historians argue that this might have ended the war had the, the British been able to prevail and had the evacuation not occurred. Uh, but it successfully succeeds 
And then two weeks later, the British land at Kipps Bay. And it's the Marbleheaders that once again are there in the vortex of battle, along with the Marylanders, who I wrote about in a book called Washington's Immortals. Um, these two groups, along with others, um, are witnessing a great bug out of the Revolutionary um, Continental Army. Many men flee, many men are part of the militia, and Washington watches as his army literally disintegrates in front of his eyes. And there's really a, a very compelling scene where Washington is on his horse, and he's facing the British army, which is charging forward at him only 500 yards away. And he's literally catatonic. And one of his men pulls the bridle of his horse away from the vortex of battle. Washington seemingly was about to sacrifice himself, um, but he's pulled away by somebody and the men continue to fight. And it's the Marbleheaders and the Marylanders and other rear guard units that put up a fight that stiffen the resistance that allow the Continental Army to once again escape. They go across what's now Central Park into entrenchments in, Har in Harlem Heights. And uh, it's in Harlem Heights that we have one of our first victories against um, British trained troops, the light infantry actually, it's a small victory, but it lifts our, our morale. But it's a, it's a short and sweet engagement and it's uh, one that uh, few and far between as, 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 as time goes forward and months go forward, uh, it's one military disaster after another that befells the Continental Army. Um, there, the, um, you know, after Harlem Heights, there's a number of, uh, actions in, that occur and, uh, it's the Marbleheaders that are involved at, um, at a place called Throng's Neck where the British try to land further up the, uh, the neck of, of Manhattan and the, um, amphibious assault is actually repelled. It's, uh, it's one of those rare occasions where the British have an overwhelming force, but a small number of men repel an invasion. And uh, it's thanks to Edward Hand largely and his trained riflemen that, that pick off a number of officers and other British troops that are landing that compel the British to call off their, their, their amphibious assault. And they wait several days and then they land again at Pelham Bay, and it's once again, the uh, Marbleheaders play a decisive role or key role in the battle. They land, uh, you know, this is a, an area that if you live in New York City, you can visit these places. And that's where, why I think there's so much amazing history in Manhattan and New York that is in plain sight. For instance, at Pelham Bay, you have something called Glover's Rock, where the British uh, land, it's near there and a local militia group that is attached, if you will, to Glover or ne nearby um, begins the engagement against the British uh, as they fall back towards the um, Pelham Bay, what's now the Pelham Bay Golf Course. And it's here that there's still a series of stone walls that exist that the Marbleheaders make a stand along with John Glover is now in charge of a brigade, not just a regiment. So it's several regiments of Massachusetts men that are fighting behind these stone walls. 
And why it's important is the entire British army is about to pounce on the Continental Army, but it's the brigade, Glover's brigade and the Marbleheaders that are slowing that advance. And it's here, Pelham Bay is one of the great forgotten battles of the Revolutionary War. It's here behind stone walls, a collapsible defense. This is something quite unique. It's part of the American way of war, the evolving American way of war that the Marbleheaders are, are actually arguably is spearheading along with other units. And we're fighting behind stone walls and falling back. We're not, we're using to some degree European battle tactics of mass fire, <clears throat> but we're incorporating an American way of war, which is to use obstructions and other things and collapsible defenses um, to, that are at our, to our advantage. And uh, it's here at Pelham Bay that they slow the British and allow <clears throat> the Continental Army to escape towards White Plains. And White Plains, the, the Marbleheaders once again play an important role. And they meet somebody called Johann Rahl. And uh, Johann Rahl is a, an amazing Hessian commander who is uh, literally somebody that was born into war. His father was a regimental commander and he was almost his entire life was spent in the um, Hessian army and uh, armed forces from Germany. Uh, as a small boy, he was reared in the army and just grew up in the army and became quite a fearsome soldier and officer, an excellent officer who was incredibly brave. And uh, Johann Rahl leads the attack at White Plains and the breakthrough on one of the key hills there <clears throat> and uh, changes the course of history. And, um, you know, White Plains doesn't very, go quite well for us, but it's not nearly as bad as the disaster that is about to occur in the last remaining outpost, if you will, in New York City. And that's the, the massive fortification that we have at Fort Washington. And um, it's at the, fort, the base of the Fort Washington Bridge that there's a mile long earthen fort that um, is occupied by over nearly 3000 men from the Continental Army. It's uh, General Green that insists that we hold the fort and that we can hold the fort. Washington has second thoughts about it, but goes along with Green. And uh, the fort is a, uh, is another military disaster where nearly 300 or 3,000 Americans are, are put into captivity or killed. <clears throat> and it's Johann Rahl that once again leads the assault on that fort and is quite the, um, the hero of, of the uh, Hessian forces and is known as the Hessian lion. Um, but the, the fort is a military disaster and it swings the political mood of the country and the political will of the country is waning. Um, and uh, it's here that, you know, Washington is facing one of his most difficult um, times. And uh, the book captures, it's a narrative history of this, of this war through the eyes of a small group, but it's, it's a sort of band of brothers, if you will, of these men 
that um, the Wall Street Journal says reads like fiction, even though it's nonfiction with over a thousand endnotes. But one of those endnotes for Fort Washington, for instance, taps into the great oral histories of the war. And that would be the pension applications that run throughout this book. There are many, many um, stories in this book that are in the words of the men themselves, in some cases, the women. And it's the pension applications for the officers and men that I tapped to gain that oral history, where if you were lucky enough to survive the American Revolution around 1820, you could go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you saw and did. And um, it's here that this oral history was captured from these soldiers and officers. And it's really, in many cases, quite extraordinary. With the case of uh, Fort Washington, I used the account from Lawrence Everhart, who was probably one of the luckiest soldiers of Fort Washington, in the sense that nearly everybody was captured, many were killed, and they literally, the, the British and the Hessians lined up these prisoners in a gauntlet, and the men literally had to run that gauntlet, and they were kicked and beaten, in some cases bayoneted to death, they were robbed of their possessions, but it was here that Everhart escaped by a rowboat and he went across the Hudson River and he made land near Fort Lee and he came upon uh, General Washington who was looking at this debacle through his spyglass and he recalls what he sees and he sees General Washington with tears in his eyes as he's witnessing his men being captured and massacred. But this is the kind of stuff that's in the indispensables. It's very personal. It's based on uh, diaries, letters, and pension applications of the primary participants. But going forward, it's the um, indispensables that play a key role once again. Uh, this is arguably some of the darkest days in the American Revolution. The um, November and December 1776 just keeps getting worse for the United States which is less than six months old at this point. And the British are overrunning New Jersey. Um, many, many um, Americans are signing oaths of allegiance to the British. They are, um, they are surrendering uh, basically to the British in one way or another. And the enlistments within the army are, are literally expiring because the army was, in many cases, was set for a year. The listments are expiring on December 1st and later on December 31st. And the army of 20,000 that, that Washington had is literally melting away uh, in his eyes. And bold action is needed in order to change the course and trajectory of the Revolutionary War. <laughs> because very soon, he's not gonna have an army and he's not gonna have the political will within the United States to continue on the war. And he pretty much stakes everything on a, a bold and decisive uh, strike on the Hessian outpost that is garrisoned by the Hessian lion, Johann Rall, who was the earlier the victor of, uh, at White Plains and also at Fort Washington. And um, the, the garrison there is under attack 
constantly by the militia, the local militia there. It's being raided by the Continental Army, which is on the other side of the Delaware River. And uh, Rawl recognizes that he's in a very difficult spot. And he asked for, constantly asked for reinforcements because he's being constantly hit by the militia and the Continental Army. They just don't have enough. And, um, you know, they're literally sleeping in their uniforms with their muskets by their side, um, waiting for the next attack. And British intelligence indicates that that attack is coming soon. And he's given warning that Washington will soon attack. And it's, he decides to make that operation on Christmas day, on Christmas night to actually launch it. And the code name for that operation is victory or death fittingly because everything is being staked on this operation at Trenton. And Washington turns to John Glover and asks him, can you transport the army <coughs> across the Delaware? Which is also a daunting challenge. On Christmas day, the Delaware is a disaster. There, it's ice filled, it's fast flowing. And oh, by the way, there is a massive nor'easter. And the weather once again, like at Brooklyn is intervening. Um, but that weather, um, is a double-edged sword. Washington has a complex plan to take Trenton. He decides to put the bulk of his army in the boats with John Glover, and then he splits up the army into multiple parts to cross the river uh, in multiple places to eventually basically flank uh, Trenton. Only John Glover and the Marbleheaders are able to cross with the army. Everyone else fails on Christmas day because the, the waters are just too treacherous. They don't have the skill that it takes to cross that river. And that skill for the Marbleheaders was honed after years of, of practice in the Grand Banks and years of time in the Grand Banks. And they are able to, um, to make that crossing. And, and get the army, at least a portion of the army under, under Washington's command um, about 10 miles or more north of Trenton where they land. And it's the middle of a snowstorm. Um, they're, they're making their way down towards Trenton. And you know, several kind of interesting incidents occurs. Um, one involves, um, Washington tells his men that if any civilians pop out, you're to detain them or tell them to go back in their house. Most cases, you're to detain them. And in the case of a doctor, his dog is barking and he comes out of his house and it's a young Lieutenant Monroe that greets him and tells him that he must not, uh, you know, you've got to go back in the house. Uh, it's, the, you know, it's an order. And instead, the doctor, a doctor by the name of Riker, says, look, I might be of service to the Continental Army. I'm a surgeon. And he comes along the side of young Lieutenant Monroe. And the army continues to march uh, south towards Trenton. And then they run across about 200 men from a Virginian by the name of Adam Stephen. 
and Washington is dumbfounded. Why on earth are you here? You're supposed to be with the army. And you know, you're, you have no orders to be in front of us. Turns out that Stephen conducted a raid earlier in the day and without authorization, uh, many think it was a, a, a raid of vengeance because several of his men were killed before that. Um, and Washington is beside himself. So you have destroyed my entire plans, he tells him, but quickly regains his composure and tells Stephen to fall back and, and fall in line. What's quite interesting here is this may have been a, a situation where it literally helped the situation accidentally. You had not only the Nor'easter, which made, which screened the, um, the army crossing the river and made it look like who and on earth would actually conduct a massive assault during a Nor'easter. That's what's going through the mind of Johann Rahl, but also the fact that Stephen's raid may have led Rahl to believe that this was the attack that British intelligence had warned him of that was coming and that they repelled that attack and that he could rest easy that night. <clears throat> As he's resting easy that night, playing checkers, the rest of his men are very uneasy, but it's the Americans that are coming. And shortly after dawn, they arrive in Trenton and uh, surprise the garrison. And uh, there's fighting, some house to house fighting but what occurs that's very important, that's often overlooked by many historians, it's the Marblehead Regiment that seizes the bridge across Assenpeak Creek, which is in Southern Trenton. And this bridge is some of the most important real estate in North America because this is Johann Rawls escape route in the event things go south and things are quickly going south. He decides to try to defend uh, the town he moves outside of the town slightly. He asks if the bridge is still open. He's given false information that the bridge has been captured, even though shortly afterwards it literally was captured. And he decides to stand and fight. And it's the cannons that are on the high ground on that bridge that fire upon him. And Washington's forces converge upon Johann Rall. And instead of a a typical battle in the 18th century where both sides clash and when one side gains the upper hand, the other retreats. This is a decisive American victory that destroys Johann Rahl's regiment and captures much of it. And Johann Rahl uh, very tragically is, is killed. Uh, Washington himself um, comes to this wounded uh, Hessian colonel and um, you know, offers him assistance along with any of the other wounded men. And uh, Washington then takes the captured cannon as well as other arms and hundreds of prisoners and they move across the river uh, back to Pennsylvania. And it's here that you know, in some cases Washington may have wanted to stop, but in some you know, in one case, his hand is literally forced by one of the forces that tried to cross on Christmas Day. And this is John Cadwallader's Philadelphia Associators, their militia group that crosses without authorization um, and 
There's also a militia uprising in New Jersey that encourages Washington to recross the Delaware and uh, engage the British again, rather than just sort of collect his prisoners and his cannon and, and then hold back. Instead, he pushes forward and um, he puts, in, puts the army, it's a great gamble. He puts the army in harm's way. And uh, literally one of my favorite stories in The Indispensables is the Battle at Assunpeak Creek, also known as the Second Battle of Trenton. And it's here, this is a, a movie that's waiting to happen. It's here that the, um, the Continental Army has to hold a bridge at all costs. And the British with their best men, the light infantry, the grenadiers, they charge that bridge multiple times. Washington himself is in the vortex of battle. He's, his horse is on the side of the bridge. He's leading the men and miraculously bullets are flying. Nothing is, is hitting him. And he commands the, uh, the men to hold and they hold in one of the great battles of literally unknown battles in many ways of the Revolutionary War. And once again, like um, at Brooklyn, Washington has a decision to make that night. Does he stand and fight or does he retreat? And he comes up with the plan. We don't really know who exactly devises the plan. Many think it's Washington himself to attack the small British garrison at Princeton, and then push on to Brunswick, where the British have a large number of supplies and also a massive war chest of the payroll for the army, which could, um, if Washington was able to get his hands on that, potentially could alter the course of the war also. Um, and that's the plan. They decide in the middle of the night to have several, you know, part of the Americans digging entrenchments, act, you know, very loudly. There's fires that are, that are lit to make it look like the army is digging in for another round of combat, when in reality, the bulk of it is moving up <coughs> a country road and making their way towards Princeton. Um, a portion of the Marbleheaders at this point, um, literally, leave the army while another portion stays. And the portion that stays is involved in the Battle of Princeton. And uh, it's here, there's a, it's a classic, what's known as a meeting engagement where both armies literally clash in the middle of the morning. Um, that force was moving down towards, the British force was moving towards Trenton. Washington was moving towards them. There's a pitched battle. Things don't go well initially at all. Washington himself, once again, changes the course of history. He charges into the battle. Um, musket balls, everything is flying. It's a miracle. The commander in chief is, it seems, um, impervious to small arms fire, uh, survives and, and affects the, the course of the battle, changes that battle. And uh, this is part of what's now known as like the 10 crucial days that literally changed the course of American history. The core group of Marbleheaders that stays with the army would also play another role that would be vitally important. Um, the book gets into 
you know, begins in 1776, and it, it talks about the, the elements that, that begin the political revolution, uh, the things that the British do that literally oppress us. Um, there's taxes, there's uh, impressment, where, where literally we, our ships are being captured and we were being put, you know, these, uh, these marbleheaders are, are, are being put into slavery effectively. Um, and, uh, but in the midst of all that, a virus hits Marblehead. It's brought in by the ships and politically, it divides the town between patriots and loyalists. There's massive political violence. The jail's broken into the hospital that these men create, an inoculation hospital, which was cutting edge science at the time, is burned to the ground. But it's quite interesting. It's, this is what is the, the, the salvation of the Continental Army comes from this, uh, these early disasters. The, the virus in 1777 is taking more lives than British bullets. And it's a marbleheader that saves the army. It's Dr. Bond, who's a um, Nathaniel Bond, whose character that had never been written about until The Indispensables, um, is, he remains on with the, the army. He's one of the, the marbleheaders that stays on. And Washington tasks him with with building the inoculation hospitals and inoculating the army. Uh, many argue that this is one of Washington's greatest strategic decisions because the army is inoculated and it's now able to fight the British. And it's able to continue forward thanks to Dr. Bond and the science of inoculation, which is a situation that literally kills in many cases as well as it cures. But it, uh, it, in this case, most of the Continental Army is saved and inoculated, but Dr. Bond, very tragically, thanks to his service, uh, is perishes in the process of his service to the army. But that is just another reason why the book is called The Indispensables. And uh, it's you know filled with uh, little known things that, that most people don't, don't realize that makes make a huge difference. And with that, I'm, I'm very happy to take questions. Thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. I'm going to turn it over to Colin. I've been seeing a lot of questions coming up in the chat, so she will comb through there and pick some out. All right, hello, everyone. Um, so the first question I have is from Bob, who asks, how did they load cannon and horses into boats? Uh, did they have barges? How they, they did. They had uh, flat bottom boats, especially the Trenton operation. They had something called uh, Durham boats, which were these long boats. And they also had barges, too, that could uh, they could move the cannon. And um, this is a huge thing. Uh, they were able to move 18 different 18 cannon across the Delaware that night. And this is kind of a hallmark of the American way of war, which is firepower and massive firepower. They brought massive firepower to bear um, at the Battle of Trenton, and uh, it play it plays a decisive role. How were they able to use those ships undetected, like you said? Well, at the um, at the Battle of Trenton, the um, 
the nor'easter was screening the movement of all of those boats. So they couldn't, nobody could really see what was going on at that time. And Jason asks, how many Marblehead men were there to help in the escape? In the escape from the from Brooklyn, mm -hmm. it's 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 hard to say, but roughly between five and six hundred. Wow, that's quite a few, more than I was yes. expecting. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see. Um, Marjorie asks, "What role did women play in many of these battles? Any specific women to note?" The um, the great distance prevented most of the Marblehead women from actually accompanying their men. Uh, in some cases, there were camp followers, if you will, that accompanied the army. Uh, there isn't, I, there, in the case of the Marbleheaders, the, the role of the women um, is quite interesting. There's very few surviving accounts, unfortunately, and uh, they were taking care of things back home which was a very, very challenging thing. The town was economically depressed and uh, you know, nothing was working. People were literally starving. And one of the scenes that I've got in the book is a food riot that occurs in Marblehead itself at the end of 1776, or beginning of 1777, where the women take up arms to um, feed their families and they raid storehouses and, uh, and, and take grain. It's really quite an extraordinary story. Wow, I'd definitely be interested to hear more about that. Um, let's see, Jason asks if you know the name of the virus that was affecting them at the time. This is the smallpox virus that um, is so deadly and so virulent that um, it ravages Marblehead and ravages the army. And George asks, what happened to the other boats on Christmas night that didn't make it across the Delaware? Did they just go back to the Pennsylvania side and wait for news of the Trenton outcome? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, and with the exception of Cadwallader's men, which crossed the next day or shortly thereafter, and then they went over without orders. The others were you know, the operation failed. So they, they waited for orders and then their orders were to join the rest of the army. And uh, yeah, John Conwalter though, on the other hand, does cross and they have a sizable force. I mean, over 1500 men uh, cross the river shortly after Christmas. And that's a, one of the decisions that Washington uses to to go to, to reinforce um, or go back across the river into, into New Jersey. Wow. Uh, I have a question um, also. Why was this particular, you talk about how diverse this regiment was. Why was this particular regiment so diverse and did that reflect other regiments of the time or were they unique in some way? They were pretty unique. Um, the town itself was pretty cosmopolitan and diverse. Essex County had um, more diversity than most of Massachusetts. And, you know, it's hard to pin the exact numbers of percentages because the records are so scarce. Um, but in some cases, it's, it's possible that it was up to, 
you know, 15% of a company, which is over, you know, nearly roughly 60 men or more, which is sizable because in the, in the entire state of Massachusetts, it was about 3% of African-Americans. But I think what's also important and very interesting <clears throat> is that they were diverse, but also united and worked as a team. And it was Massachusetts and many of the men in the Marblehead Regiment that led to um, the abolishment of slavery. They were very violently uh, anti-slave for the most part. Several made their thesis on it. Elbridge Gary, who's the main character in this book, um, really tried to get it out of the constitution. Uh, so this is a, in some ways you could say is an early spearhead of the civil rights movement. It's also a situation where you have a diverse group that fights extraordinarily well and is a model. All right, thanks. Um, and let's see, Marjorie, at, Marjorie asks, who was Washington's chief strategist at the time? Uh, you have a number of people that are strategists, but the person that was in charge of the Trenton operation was Henry Knox. And Henry Knox is, is, a, is a key member that's, that's coordinating things along with John Glover. Um, but it's Washington himself that does a lot of this planning and strategy. And it's Washington himself that is a tremendous and amazing leader that changes strategy in the middle of a war, learns from his mistakes, is able to work with allies and uh, just has tremendous personal courage on the battlefield. Leads by example. Um, does, uh, let's see, Ken asks, does the US Naval Academy teach the cadets about the Marbleheads or have any monuments of Marbleheads? And someone else, I can't think, uh, can't see who it was, asked about any um, museums that mentioned this also. So is there anything you can recommend as far as There's that? things that are scattered here and there. Um, for instance, John Glover's statue is in Boston, but he, he's largely a forgotten figure, along with the, the Marblehead stories, largely unknown until the Indispensables. And, um, you know, there's surface telling of it. Um, they're involved in these things, but the, the Indispensables is really the first book to really dig into the characters themselves and their full story, if you will, from 1776 through the, the, the early stages of the Revolutionary War. And it also tells a larger story too. That's most of my, it's kind of a hallmark of most of my books. They are small stories that tell a larger story. In this case, it's the largest story of the early American Revolution and the Revolutionary War. Why we fought. Yeah, I think we're very, lucky right now to have so many of these stories coming out and so many books being written right now about the Revolutionary War and about the smaller unsung heroes of that time period. So thank you so much for contributing to that. <laughs> and then I'll ask you the our final question, which we ask of all of our lecturers. Uh, if you could dine with anyone dead or alive at Francis Tavern, who would it be? Well, that's an easy question. Uh, that would be General Washington. Um, and it's at the tavern that he addresses his officers and bids them farewell. Um, you, you can look that up. His speech is really quite extraordinary. 
And, you know, it's, it's the beginning of something that's very important as Americans. This is the most powerful man in the world at the end of the American Revolution, but he resigns and goes back to his farm instead of assuming dictatorial powers. And I think that's an example of something that we can all learn from. It's what we're about. It's a, a key value. Excellent. Well, we definitely do as much as we can to honor George Washington at Francis Tavern. And with that, I'll hand it over back over to Sarah. Thank you so much, Patrick. Pleasure, thank you. Yes, um, thank you, Patrick, for that wonderful presentation. Uh, if you're interested in the book, the link is in the chat and it's also in the email you got about this lecture, so you can find that online. Thank you, Colin, for facilitating our Q&A. And thank you all for joining us this evening or afternoon, wherever you are. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs, you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org. There you will also find all of our social media accounts as well as a calendar for upcoming programs. Our next quarter hasn't been posted yet, but it will be coming soon. And that will be lectures through October to December. We have something a little different, a little special for September. Uh, it'll be at the end of the month. So you can also keep your eye on the website for that coming soon as well. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, that can also be done on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Uh, if you are in the New York City area, the museum is open. You can stop by, you can get tickets online in advance, or we also accept walk-ups Wednesday through Sunday. Um, I think that's everything. So thank you uh, again for joining us at another Francis Tavern Museum lecture, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.